Who's ready to get in the word? Would you say amen this morning? James chapter five. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you and we'll be on page 952 this morning as we talk about the subject living patiently in the last days. Are there any fans of Jell-O in the house this morning? I love Jell-O. Listen, I've been a pastor for a long time and been in church my whole life. And the Lord only knows how many Jell-O congealed concoction salads I've had over the course of my time in church. I've had Jell-O salads with everything, every kind of nut, every kind of fruit, every kind of marshmallow in it. You know, when I'm sick, I still love it. I want two things if I'm feeling under the weather. I want my wife's homemade chicken soup, chicken noodle soup, and I want Jell-O. And see, she always makes me the soup. Sometimes I have to send her out to Publix to get the Jell-O, but I always get it. You know, Jell-O's 125 years old, been around for well over a century. The man who invented Jell-O was a construction worker by day, but he had a very scientific mind. His name was Pearl Waite. I've never heard of a man named Pearl before, but his name was Pearl Waite, W-A-I-T. And he used to put together all kinds of medicinal concoctions in the workroom of his house. And then he'd go about <clears throat> door to door, kind of like an old line snake oil salesman selling. I mean, they put him in jail if he tried doing that today. But he would put these things together. It was good for your aches and pains. And one day he was experimenting his workroom with granulated gelatin and fruit flavoring. Have no idea where that idea came from, but that's how Jell-O was invented. It was invented in, a, in, a, in an amateur scientist workroom. His wife was actually the one that named it Jell-O. The only problem was when Mr. Waite went around his community to try to sell it, he found that there was a coolness toward his new product. He had a really hard time generating enthusiasm for it. And so as a result, uh, when the opportunity came along, he sold it to a man named Woodrich for $450. Sold the rights to it, lock, stock, and barrel. Get it, $450. Mr. Woodrich was a pretty savvy businessman who had an eye and a bent toward how to market a product. And he did in less than a decade turning his $450 investment into a million-dollar brand. And the thing about that today is that if Pearl Waite were alive, he wouldn't be a very happy man. Not only because of that, but because not one of his descendants gets one penny of royalty over the nearly four million containers of Jell-O that are sold around the world every single day. Four million containers of Jell-O sold every single day. And I'm sure that Mr. Waite may be turning over in his grave. You know why? Because Waite didn't know how to wait. And that's the idea that James comes to this morning because I have a feeling that he had a feeling and I know it to be true that you don't like to wait either. Wait to us is a loss of a valuable 
commodity we call time. Time has become so multiplied and so precious to us and our to-do lists have become so lengthy. We create more to do in a day than 24 hours will typically allow us to accomplish. And because of that, whether it's waiting in a restaurant to get a table or waiting in traffic because of congestion or waiting in a doctor's office, whatever the case might be, we get more upset and more frustrated at having to wait than just about anything else. And that's what's on James's mind as hard as he continues his journey toward the end of his letter. The principal theme in our passage today is a theme that all of us are challenged by, and it is the theme of patience. As we're going to read this passage here in just a moment, one of the things that you're going to notice is that some form of the word patient or patience is used four times in the passage that we'll be reading today. On the other side of that coin, we'll find that the word steadfast is used two different times. And what James does here is he takes these concepts of patient endurance and he delivers them <clears throat> as commands in light of four references to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I still believe Jesus is coming again. How about you? Well, if you really believe that Jesus is coming again, it will change the way that you live because you want to be found ready, holy, and blameless when the Lord Jesus Christ splits the eastern sky and comes again to usher in the kingdom for a final and eternal time. We're going to talk today about that subject of purposeful waiting or what I'm calling living patiently in the last days, something I have a feeling you have great difficulty in actually doing. Let's look at our text this morning. I want to invite you that can to stand together and honor the reading of the Word of God. And I'm going to begin reading in verse number seven. This is probably one you need to read with me, so the, note, the words will be on the screen. Let's read this one out loud together. Ready? Together. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of God and all God's people said, and to the man or woman who sneezed, all God's people said, God bless you. God bless you. Let's bow together. Father, we're very grateful today to be here. We love you and we know you love us. <clears throat> Help us to show and demonstrate by the way we live that we love you, that we take your commands very seriously. 
And Father, the preacher is first to confess the great challenge that living patiently in these last days is to him. And I have a feeling that many of us struggle with that. The flesh is not by nature uh, patient, and we find it difficult to wait. But help us to wait purposefully, wholly, blamelessly, in a way that is influential on this lost and dying world because we want by our lives and by our verbal testimonies uh, to bring as many people with us into the kingdom before that great and wonderful day when Jesus comes again. Help us all to be ready for that great day we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you, Hillcrest family. Y'all can be seated. Patience is a virtue as the old saying goes, but um, I think all of us would agree that patience is a great challenge as well. I, you can make an argument that of all the Christian virtues that are mentioned in the Bible, patience certainly is one of the most difficult for more believers than any other, and many would actually identify it as the most challenging of all Christian virtues. We all know what it is, and we all know what it's not, but just to make sure that we're on the same page, let me give you the Jim Locke Revised Standard Version definition of what we're talking about through this message today as we talk about this critical component of Christian patience. Patience is simply this. It's the spiritual ability to respond to adversity with three things, calmness, composure, and self-control. Patience is the spiritual ability to respond to some form of adversity, the personal adversity or circumstantial adversity with calmness, composure, and self-control. That makes sense, say amen this morning. See, we all know what a short-tempered person is. Some of y'all are by nature probably short-tempered people. Patience is the exact opposite of what we mean when we talk about short-temperedness. This is why the King James Bible typically translates the word that's translated patience in our English Standard Version as what? Long-suffering, that's right. Long-suffering, because patience, by definition, is the opposite of short-tempered. It's long-tempered, or as we'd say it here down south, patience is the ability to keep idling your motor when you feel like stripping the gears. Somebody say amen this morning. Now, I know a lot of people hear that and you say, you know what, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. Here's the thing, you can do what you want to do in the Spirit of God. You can't blame your short-temperedness on your red-headed Irish ancestors. Although many people try to do it, we play the blame game and we just convince ourselves it's just the way God made me and so I can't do it. Here's the thing, no, in one sense you're right, you can't do it. But there's an important reason why in this definition we just used a moment ago, I intentionally inserted the word spiritual. Patience is a spiritual virtue. It's the spiritual ability to respond to adversity with calmness, composure, and self-control. So living patiently while you're not able to do it consistently in the flesh, it's something that the Spirit of God can accomplish consistently through you. The challenge is you gotta remain, uh, you gotta remain in an abiding relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to live in Christ as Christ lives in you. You have to walk, not by the flesh, but by the Spirit of God. And as you walk in the Spirit of God, God will give you the necessary abilities to respond to personal circumstantial adversity with what the Scriptures call 
patience. And remember, this is a spiritual characteristic of those who've been born again by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says it in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Say it out loud. Patience. So you and I don't get an out. We don't get to point fingers backwards. We don't get to point fingers at people we live with. Well, if they weren't so irritating all the time, no, we don't get that option. The fruit of the Spirit, the Bible says, is patient. And that's why you never look more like Jesus than when you're responding to adversity in a long-tempered kind of way rather than a short-tempered kind of way. That's the way Jesus lived, isn't that right? The greatest hour of his life, the greatest crisis of his life, the Bible says he opened up not his mouth. And it's interesting, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ here, the first words out of James's mouth in this particular passage of Scripture is the two-word command what? Be patient. And all throughout the passage, he elaborates on that very simple command. Even a little child can understand it. Be patient. He gives us five very important ways that we're to demonstrate patience as we walk with the Lord in the light of his word. The first thing he would tell us is to be patient when you face difficulty. Anybody in here ever face difficulty in life? Only if you're breathing. You face difficulty most every day of your life in some way, shape, or form. The Bible gives us a wonderful example of patience here in terms of facing challenges and facing difficulties. Just learning how to wait and endure in times we don't understand. When after he makes this command to be patient, James brings up the example of the farmer. Verse 7, see how the farmer, what? Waits for the precious fruit of the earth being what? Patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, 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 patient. Be patient, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now many of you remember that many of these in the audience of James made their living by the land. Many of them were farmers, or at least they worked on farms. They may not have owned farms, most of them probably didn't. But they were tenant farmers. They worked the land. And it makes sense because many of these obviously were working for those rich folk that got criticized when we looked at the passage last week. And so it was an agrarian economy, an agrarian society by and large. And it makes sense that James would use the farmers an everyday illustration of patience. Even those of us today who ride a desk on a daily basis understand how a farmer has to exercise patience because they're largely dependent on things they cannot control. They can't control the sunshine. They can't control the rain. They can't control the wind. They can't control the weather. They can't control global climate trends. They can't control the health of their livestock, things like parasites, etc. So they have to focus on what they can control and learn not to fret, learn not to worry about things they can't control. Now, I know that we've got all these sophisticated irrigation systems today. Don't write me any emails, okay? Keep them to yourself. James is not writing to a 21st century audience, though the practical applicability of what he's saying is absolutely right on. They didn't have any of that stuff in the age that he was writing. Um, to those farmers, they had to learn to work the soil, plant, pray for rain, and then what? Patiently 
wait, doing what they could do to be productive in the meantime, not worried about the things that they could not control. You know, a few things are more frustrating than times you don't see coming. Those hard punches that tend to knock you out, the ones that are unexpected. And James is quick to tell us, in those times where things don't happen like you think they ought to happen, or when something happens that you don't see coming, James is quick to remind us there are certain things you ought not do whenever that happens. You don't take matters into your own hands. You don't react in an ungodly way. You, you remain patient. You stay the course. You trust God because you know he's sovereign and he's on his throne and that nothing happens in your life or in mine that's not filtered through the sovereign hand of an almighty God who loves us and gave himself up for us. Do you all believe God is on his throne this morning? Amen. You believe God can see you through any and every problem or difficulty or adversity in your life. Well, if that's the case, you're gonna learn the discipline of waiting on the Lord and being able to do it with an attitude of joy. Let's go back all the way to the very beginning of this letter. Count it all joy when you fall into various what? Trials, knowing that God is at work. The testing of your faith produces what? Patience, endurance, staying power, the very thing that James is talking about now at the end of the letter. It's almost like he's using this concept of patient endurance to bookend the entirety of the very letter. Why? Because it's the one thing that we all tend to struggle with as much, if not more, than any and everything else. And one of the things about enduring and patiently waiting through times of difficulty, particularly when they involve people, is learning to let God be the judge to not retaliate, to learn to turn, as Jesus said, the other cheek. That's another difficult teaching because Christianity by definition is non-retaliatory. Turn the other cheek. Let God be the judge if other people are messing around with you. And with that in mind, that takes us to a second reminder. James says, be patient not only when you face difficulty, but be patient when you face division as well. Remember again, in that previous passage, James is talking to people that are on the uh, receiving end of heaps of abuse. There are lots of poor folk in his congregation and many of them were suffering abuse because their employers were not, not only not being generous with them, they weren't paying them at all. They were withholding the agreed upon wage. These people were used to being paid every day and had to be paid every day. So in a very immediate sense, in James's immediate audience, he's encouraging his church to be patient in their personal divisions between themselves and their employers. Count it all joy as you face these difficulties. It's a great and timely reminder. Remain patient, especially with people, especially with people. Now, I know y'all probably don't deal with difficult people as a general course of life. I mean, we all deal with difficult people every day inside the church, outside the church. And James reminds us, you've got to not only be patient and learn to wait on God in the midst of adverse circumstances, but you have to learn to be patient and wait on the Lord when you're dealing with adverse people because sometimes those people can't be jettisoned from your life. Hey, 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 you may be living with some of those people. You can't just get rid of them. You've got to learn how to remain patient with them until the coming of the Lord. Verse nine, do not grumble against one another. Let's read that one together. Verse nine, together. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, 
so that you may not be judged. There's another reference to the second coming of Christ right there. Because with the coming of Christ comes what? Judgment, that's right. You don't wanna be judged. You wanna be found blameless, particularly in your dealings with people. And this is a thing. Unexpected adversity usually leads to unexpected conflict in relationships. Unexpected adversity leads to relational conflict. And much of the time, again, most of the time even, it's with the people you love the most. Because it's hard to live together. It's hard to, to live under one roof without a little bit of conflict. That's true at home. It's also true in the church. I mean, most of us would look around in this room today, maybe not with everybody, because we probably don't know everybody. But there's probably some people around us or across from us or behind us or in front of us that we do know very well. And you'd probably say, you know what? These are some of the, these are some of the people I love the most in life. I love being around them. Love doing life together with them. Sometimes you can butt heads with those kinds of people as well. Just let a disagreement enter into the dialogue or enter in to the discussion. Sometimes there is division because we don't know how to process. We don't know how to live together disagreeably much anymore. As I've said before, in this culture that we're living in today, I will be your friend as long as there is 100% agreement on every matter under the sun. But if there's one area, and it doesn't have to be a crucial area, sports, much less the other things that I'm not even gonna mention today because I don't wanna go there, but you know exactly what they are. We disagree there, we're done. That is so radically unbiblical and so radically unchrist-like. We have to resist that urge. I say we have to resist that urge and we have to show patience, not only in times of difficulty, but with difficult people. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 14. You're not gonna like this verse, but I'm gonna read it anyway. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive be patient with everyone. I say you're not gonna like that. You like the warn others part. Yeah, I get in their face about that, man. But then notice the last part that tempers the statement. Be patient with everyone. Now, why would Paul say that? And don't you just love it? He said everyone. You know what everyone means in the Greek New Testament? It means everyone. That's right. You don't need to go to school to know that. Not only does it mean the people that you like, but especially those that you have challenge with. That's why it's in there. Because it's those people that you have to be the most patient with. I mean, that's a good word right there. Because of times of stress and pressure, there's always a temptation to grumble. And the Bible teaches us not to do that, particularly within the household of faith. Always this temptation to divide. Critical spirit will, will do that if you're on the receiving end of it. I love the story about the man with the critical spirit who decided to walk away from life. He'd had it. He'd lived for many years in the rat race, helter-skelter of the corporate world, dog-eat-dog. Dog. And he said, I've had it. I'm joining a monastery. And he goes out and he applies to a monastery and he's eventually accepted to the monastery. And he has a meeting with a senior monk of the monastery who says, you know what? We've done some investigation on you and you have a reputation of being a person with a critical spirit. 
And so the way this is going to work is we're going to let you in because we believe in you and believe that God can work on you. But he said, here's the thing. You're limited to two verbal words a year. Two, one, two. And you can only say them to me when we have an annual meeting at the end of every year. Two words you may speak, but no more than two or we don't have a relationship anymore. And so the guy agreed to that, spent his first year, came and had his meeting with the senior monk and the first two words out of his mouth were bed hard. <laughs> Turned and walked out of the room. Another full year passes by. Goes into his meeting with the senior monk. Two words come out of his mouth. Room cold. Turns and walks out of the room. Third year passes. Comes and has his annual meeting with the senior monk. Looks at him and said, food stinks. Turns and walks out of the room. Finally, the fourth year passes by and the guy comes in for his annual meeting with the senior monk. Two words uttered from his mouth with great contempt. I quit. To which the senior monk looked at him and said, man, that's a relief. The only thing you've done since you got here is complain, complain, complain. <laughs> Adversity is tough. And part of the challenge is it can really breed a critical spirit in your life. And how we deal with that, particularly as we relate to others, says much about who really is in control of my life. Who really controls your life? Well, I'm telling you, if you really want to know the answer to that question, just watch somebody who's in the midst of relational conflict. Proverbs 19 and verse 11 is another good word from the Bible. Those with good sense are slow to anger. It is their glory to what? Say it out loud. To overlook an offense. We have great difficulty learning to do that. Some things you've got to just learn to let go. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Some things you just learn to let go. It's a glorious thing to overlook an offense. Every husband and every wife knows that. So does every parent. You've got to you learn to pick your battles wisely with your kids. Every pastor has to learn that valuable lesson. Pick your battles wisely. Some things are just better off being let go. Some things you just have to overlook for the sake of unity and for the sake of peace and for the sake of harmony. James has already said it again back in chapter one and it's almost like he's using it as a bookend here. Let every man be what? Quick to speak or uh, slow, to, quick to hear, slow to what? Speak and slow to become angry because man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. But James would also remind us of a third thing about patience. He'd tell us, be patient as you face difficulty. Be patient as you face division. Third, be patient when you face disapproval. Disapproval. Here, James moves to a specific example of relational conflict. Times when adversity leads to a kind of grumbling where people turn on you directly, talk about you abusively, ridicule you publicly, or embarrass you in some way or mistreat you in some way. It's with that idea in mind that James turns to the biblical prophets here. As a group, he doesn't talk about any one prophet, he just throws the prophets out there as a group because all of them had one thing in common, they were all on the receiving end of public disapproval. Sometimes even from the people of God, much less the popular culture at large. 
And they had to exercise patience in a very unique kind of way. That's in verse 10 of our text. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, I don't have time this morning to go down a full litany of all of the biblical Old Testament prophets who indeed had to exercise patience in the face of adversity. They'd just be too many to count. Moses is a good example, though. Moses struggled, you'll remember, with a rebellious, a rebellious, obstinate people. At one point, he seems to be on the verge of even being suicidal to some degrees. He begs God to take his life at that very moment. Kill me here and now if I've found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. He just had it. Moses was ready to resign, can you tell? Had to learn patience. And he never bailed out. David remained calm while Saul, the king of Israel, was on his tail, chasing him through every nook and cranny of the southern Judean wilderness. And he had the opportunity, you remember, to take the life of the king in the cave that time. He could have killed him and made his life a whole lot easier, but he didn't do that. He went away quietly exercising great patience because he knew that was the righteous response to a time of disapproval. Jeremiah's life, talk about a prophet suffering abuse. He suffered one abuse after another over the course of a 40-year ministry, preached the gospel for 40 years. There's not one example in all 40 chapters or so of the book of Jeremiah where the first person ever responded to his message in repentance turning back to God, not one time. There's a reason that we call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. James reminds us that these and so many others like them are examples to us. The prophets are examples. What do they teach us? Well, they teach us, as the British would say, in the coffee mugs and the artwork, to keep calm and carry on, amen? Let me say a word about keeping calm, by the way. I heard a Navy SEAL say one time, and I've never forgot it, wrote it in the flyleaf of my Bible. Calm is contagious. So is craziness, by the way. <laughs> Weirdness can be contagious. Calm is contagious. And that's what these prophets had to do. Keep calm, carry on. That's exactly what they did. They had learned to be angry, as the Bible said. Ephesians 4, 26, be angry and do not what? Be angry and sin not. They had learned how to, as Jesus taught, to love those who persecuted them, to bless those who persecuted them, to pray for those who persecuted them. That's another difficult Christian responsibility, isn't it? Three of the big ones we talked about today, right? Learning to be patient as we wait on the Lord, learning to turn the other cheek and live in a non-retaliatory kind of way that lets God be the judge and then learning to actively pray for God to bless the people that are trying to mess you up. You're talking about a radical countercultural way to live. That's what Jesus calls us to do. That's what makes Christianity different. And that's what the world needs to see in us. Because that's the way of love. That's the way of love. And speaking, speaking of love, don't you find it rather telling 
that in the greatest chapter of the Bible on love, 1 Corinthians 13, I mean, it's one of the only one or two chapters in the Bible has its own nickname. And in that great love chapter where the apostle Paul describes, defines, explicates for us in a way like nowhere else in scripture, what love is supposed to look like. The first descriptor out of the great apostle's mouth is that love is patient. You gotta be kidding me. See, that's not the way I or most people in the room or most people in Pensacola or anywhere else for that matter would have begun our own description of love. We would say something like love is tender. I mean, that's what Elvis said, right? <laughs> love is sweet. Never let me go, right? <laughs> love is embracing. Those kinds of things. That, all of the sentimentality that's associated with love in the popular culture would kind of be the first descriptors that would elevate on our list. But that's not how the Bible describes love. Oh, kindness is in there, but kindness is in there under the umbrella of patience. Because if you're not patient with people that you're supposed to love, you surely won't be kind to them. This is where it begins. Love is patient. Love is kind. And then he goes on to say, it is not arrogant or rude. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love bears all things. Love what? Endures, steadfastness, same word. Love endures all things. I mean, love is hard. This is what you have to choose to do because that kind of stuff does not come naturally. This is a question of obedience to Christ is what this is. And then as you learn to be obedient to Christ, loving in this kind of way becomes more of a natural thing, but it's predicated on the supernatural power of God. You have to do it and you have to keep doing it and it all begins with patience. See, the reason that the prophets are an example for us is that they demonstrated that. They were steadfast. They endured all things. James says here in verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Those guys just kept going like the Energizer Bunny. They kept going in the face of disapproval. They didn't lose their composure. Sometimes they wept, you bet they did. But they didn't lose their composure to such a degree that they got sidetracked in the mission that they knew God had called them to do. They didn't strike back. They never dishonored God. Even when the adversity was personal. Even when it was to the extreme. Which takes us to a fourth qualifier of patience. James says also that we ought to be patient when we face disaster. Not only when we face difficulty or division or disapproval, but when we face disaster in the most extreme kind of adversity. You'll notice how James makes a very quick transition into one of the most familiar and one of the most popular examples of patience that you find in the Bible. Verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of whom? Say it out loud, of Job. 
and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Again, James uses the word steadfastness here, but most of the time when we're talking about Job and when we talk about someone we know who faces adversity really well, we say that they have the what of Job, the the patience of Job's and Job, and again, that's King James language. It's a different word than the word that's translated patience earlier in the passage. Steadfast endurance, the endurance of Job is really what it says. Even though patience is okay, as a synonym to put in there, because James did have to, uh, Job did have to demonstrate patience without question. You remember Job was a righteous man perhaps the most righteous on the planet. He loved God, he honored God. And disaster still struck. Just because you're living a holy and obedient life doesn't mean you're gonna be preserved from going through times of adversity. Disaster struck Job, and it did so in a variety of painful ways. Job lost his property. He lost all of his livestock. Job's servants died at the hands of marauding invaders. His children are lost in a windstorm when the roof collapses down on them and crushes every one of them to death. His wife turns on him, basically encourages him to take his own life because his body was racked with all manner of disease, the most obvious of which were these painful boils that existed from the top of his head to the tips of his toes. His friends turn on him. I mean, other than that, James had a really good life, or Job did rather. And yet the Bible says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That may be one of the most amazing statements in the Bible. Job did not sin, nor did he charge God with wrong. I mean, that's just a statement that many of us in this entitled Christian generation where we, whenever God doesn't work on our timetable or give us exactly what we want, man, we want to go in our room, slam the door, and have a pity party. Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. He stayed true to God. And the Bible says that in the end, the Lord demonstrated compassionate mercy toward Job by double blessing him at the end of his life with twice the property, restoration of children, family, property, all kinds of blessing came to him. God had a purpose in all of that. And God was accomplishing his purpose in Job. And Job was perfectly fine with that. He didn't understand it. And let me just say that Job's response to that adversity was not perfect, amen. There's a lot to criticize constructively about how James responded to God, but he never sinned. He questioned and questioned a lot. He wasn't perfect, but he was patient, amen. He was patient, steadfast endurance, the greatest mark of his life. So if you will want to gauge a person's faithfulness, if you want to gauge a person's commitment to Christ, just observe how they respond whenever they face disaster. And then James rather gives us one final marker of patience. He says, be patient be patient when you face dishonesty, dishonesty. James seems to make a 90 degree turn here. Sometimes you'll look in the Bible and verse 12 kind of be separated off all by itself because scholars aren't sure if it's the conclusion of this paragraph or the introduction of the next paragraph or if it just 
is a bridge between the two paragraphs. I think the above all there kind of connects it with the paragraph that we're in. So I'm going to keep it here for our discussion today. But he says, above all, my brothers, do not what? Don't swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other what? Oath, circle the word oath. But let your yes be yes and let your no be no so that you may not fall under what? And again, there's a reference to the second coming of the Lord, which again keeps it in the context of the passage that we're looking at. It goes without saying, why, do we, why does James bring this up? Why do we bring it up today? Because if there's a part of your life you need patience and exercising, it's with your mouth. Social media has ruined us here like, like we weren't ruined before. But before, we at least had to have the courage to pop off verbally. Now we just hide in the safety of our little room at home and just type it out for the whole world to see. Now we need patience with our language. But here's the thing, having said that, this is not really, when he uses the word swear, he's really not talking about cussing like we would talk about it, swearing in terms of profanity, though that surely applies. I'll preach about that another time. But he's talking about oath-taking here, fundamentally, which means that what James is talking about is learning to be consistently honest with the words you use. I mean, we, we're in a generation that plays so fast and loose with the truth that when, when it comes time, and I find myself doing this as well, when it comes time to get a really serious point across, we've got to preface it by saying, hey, listen, in all honesty now, or hey, no lie, no lie, listen up. Here's James's point. You ought not need the precursors. You ought not ever even have to do that. In his day, in times of stress or in great disagreement with other people, oaths had become super common. I mean, we get our, people do it today when they say, by God this or by God that, that's an oath. They would use by heaven, by the earth, whatever the case might be, and James references that here in the passage. And not all oath-taking is wrong. This is not a statement that you should never take an oath in a court of law. That's totally different. This is a reminder to keep calm and to be patient in times of stress, particularly with how you use your words. I mean, Solomon reminded us that in our study of Ecclesiastes when he said, let your words be what? Let your words be few. Be a person who doesn't have to spice up your language to get a point across or to get somebody to listen. The words you and I use as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be trustworthy all the time. They ought to be gospel gold all the time. That's the point. Be patient. Be patient, rather, when you face potential dishonesty. Patience. The spiritual ability to respond to adversity with what? Calmness, composure, and self-control. And let me remind everybody again this morning, when it comes to patience as a believer, 
the statute of limitations never runs out. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Indeed, he is. And that's why living patiently in the last days is so critically important because living that way will help to ensure that you're always ready to meet the Lord when he comes. And even so, Lord, quickly come. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen.